I'm Grace, and this is Serial Reader. What's up, guys? Uh, welcome to the first official episode of Serial Reader, I would say, uh, where we talk about some true crime and some good books. And today we're going to be leaning heavily on the true crime side, and it's a really terrible, sad, awful story. But, um, which is like, wow, what a great way to start out my intro, huh? Um, anyways, it's, it's a twisty, turny case and there's a lot of plot twists and hopefully I'm going to be keeping you on the edge of your seat. So today we're going to be talking about Michelle or Shelly, which is what she went by. It's what I'm going to be calling her through the whole episode, uh, no tech, which is like an interesting last name. And I was like, not sure how to pronounce it, so I looked it up. Multiple sources said no tech, so, uh, like two sor- sources said notic, but I'm going with no tech because that was majority rules. So, um, before we get into anything, I want to give a brief trigger warning of a few things. So, first thing is sexual assault and rape are mentioned, uh, suicide very briefly. Um, intense torture and psychological torture and physical and psychological abuse um, are very heavy themes throughout this story. So if that's not something you feel you can handle, I would suggest skipping this episode. Uh, if that's, you know, something you feel like you can't handle right now, I would suggest coming back. But if you feel like, you know, you can handle it, um, I it's I think you can, if you feel like you're in a good headspace, I would stick around for sure. Um, It's going to be a good one. It's going to be, we're going to dive deep into this monster's uh, actions and what she did. It's, you know, it's made me emotional a few times, even just like gathering the information. So it's not an easy case by any means, but it's interesting. And it really is, it's a story of survival in the end. So I encourage you to stick around. Um, it's going to be, it's, it's awful, but in the end, it's a story of sisterhood and survival. And, um, yeah, so Shelly Notek, awful human being who we're going to, that's who we're going to be talking about. And, um, the, the torture that she bestowed upon her three daughters and the murders that she committed as well. All right, so the book that I read to get all, every single piece of information that I'm going to be telling you in this podcast or this episode is a book called If You Tell, A True Story of Murder, Family Secrets, and the Unbreakable Bond of Sisterhood by Greg Olson. And it's a phenomenal book. It's nonfiction. But it's written in a way that like it makes you feel like it's fiction. So if you're not a huge nonfiction person, you should give this one a try. If you, you know, I'm only gonna be talking about the really important parts of the story. I'm not gonna be delving deep into every little tiny detail, which is what Olson does in this book. So if you are listening to this podcast and you're like, wait, no, I wanna know more about that certain thing read the book. I'll link it in the show notes. It's incredible. It's really good. And I just want to give all credit where credit is due. Um, Every single piece of information I got from this book and a few other articles, but mainly from Olson's book. 
And so that's kind of the book that we're going to be talking about while we cover this case. And so the first thing that I want to do is I just want to read the inside sleeve of the book. So this is like kind of like the summary that most books have on like the inside. Um, and I this comes straight. These are straight Olson's words, not mine. So I just want to get that out there. Okay. So it says, quote, After more than a decade, when sisters Nikki, Sammy, and Tori Notek hear the word mom, it claws like an eagle's talons, triggering memories that have been their secret since childhood until now. For years behind the closed doors of their farmhouse in Raymond, Washington, their sadistic mother, Shelly, subjected her girls to years of unimaginable abuse, degradation, torture, and psychic terrors. Through it all, Nikki, Sammy, and Tori developed a defiant bond that made them far less vulnerable than Shelly imagined. Even as others were drawn into their mother's dark and perverse web, the sisters found the strength and courage to escape an escalating nightmare that culminated in multiple murders. Right, so pretty dark. (laughs) Right away, it's like, oh, okay, so a mother who kills? Got it. It's just very... Um, what's the word? Strange, I think, is what drew me to this case. It's like, first of all, there's not a whole lot of women serial killers out there. Second of all, there's not a lot of women serial killers who have children and also subject their children to these type of terrors. So I was like, I need to know more about this Shelly. And when I read the book, I read the book first in February of 2022. Oh my gosh, it's 2023 now. That's crazy. Um, happy new year, by the way. But anyways, I read the book last year, so it's been almost a year and I was, it's hard. It's a hard read. This is a really hard story, but it's so interesting and so many twists and turns and it's, it's crazy. So let's get right into it. The first thing that I want to mention is that there are a lot of names in this case. There are a lot of different people So I'm going to try my best to break it down and um, talk about one person at a time because I think it's really important for, you know, monsters such as Shelly to to kind of have a background on their parents and who they were as children. I think I think that's interesting. And I also just think that we kind of need to know where they came from, I think. And I just think it's interesting. So, but I'm going to make it as easy as possible or try to make it as easy as possible for you to follow along. Um, So the first person that we're going to be talking about is Les Watson, which is uh, Shelly's father. And Shelly's the monster in this case, if you haven't gathered. Um, So Les was known as a quote, Mr. Big Shot. He was a formal, former battleground high school track and football star. And if you look at him, you can just tell, like, he was a really big dude. He stood at six feet, two inches tall. So, yeah, big guy. Um, And almost every article I read in the book, it said that everybody knew him. Like, he was, like I said, Mr. Big Shot around town. Everybody knew who he was. He was a smooth talker and a, quote, master of BS. So, (laughs) he was very, very handsome. And every girl in town really thought he was something, like a, a really big catch. They all wanted to be with him, not only for his good looks and smooth talking, but because him and his mother owned and operated a pair of nursing homes. So he also, you know, had some money and Les himself was doing well and he um, owned 
the Tiger Bowl, which was a bowling alley. It was a pretty small bowling alley, um, but it had like had a few lanes and it had a snack bar, which is where Miss Laura Stallings was working in 1958. So Laura had just graduated uh, from Fort Vancouver High School. So Les and Laura didn't go to the same school. So Les went to Battleground High School and Laura went to Fort Vancouver High School. Just, just you know, to make that clear. Um, from all accounts, Laura was just beautiful. And like I said earlier, I couldn't find any pictures of her because her name, like I said, her real name has been replaced for privacy purposes. But she was described as having blonde curly hair and that she wore it in a ponytail all the time and big, bright blue eyes. She was a smart girl, but she stated that her brain wasn't fully developed when she had agreed to date and then marry Les Watson. So, yikes. Uh, Les was 10 years older than Laura. But get this, this is the kicker. He lied to her and told her that he was only four years older than her. So all kinds of messed up. Like, don't do that. Just, you know, be honest. And maybe she would have been like, okay. So she had just graduated high school. So I'm assuming she's, what, 18? And so, you know, he's 10 years older than her. He's 28. That's not like, it's not super bad. But like when you tell somebody that you're going to date, then marry, I'm just, no, I'm just four years older than you. Um, I feel like that's, I don't know. I feel like that's really bad. Maybe that's just my opinion. I don't know. I feel like that's really bad. Anyways, this is a direct quote from Laura. She said, quote, I got caught up in all he had going for him. I fell hook, line, and sinker, but he just wasn't a great guy, end quote, which is just like, oh, it's so sad. Laura and Les got married in a civil ceremony in 1960 in Vancouver, which was Laura's hometown. Only Laura's parents were present, even though they were completely against the marriage. They didn't want it to happen. They still came and they supported her. But Les didn't invite his, and uh, for pretty good reason. Um, They knew what was probably going to develop from this because it was built on lies. Anyways, um, the the morning after their ceremony, their, their civil ceremony, the phone rang. So Laura answered it. And it was Les's first wife, Sharon Todd Watson, calling from California, asking when they were coming to get, quote, these kids. And I know you're like, what? He had a first wife? Yes, he did. Uh, it was, it wasn't really, I think Laura knew about this first wife and she knew about the kids, but she had no idea that, um, she had no clue what Sharon was talking about. So I believe she knew about Sharon. She knew that Les had this first wife. And she knew that he had children, but she had no clue that Les had agreed to take care of these three children, and he did. And so these these children were Michelle, Shelley, or Michelle or Shelley, sorry, it's the same same child, Michelle, but they called her Shelley, sorry, uh, Chuck and Paul, and these were Les and Sharon's children. Um, after the call. Les told Laura that Sharon couldn't keep these kids because she was a, quote, depressive drunk. So Laura has, you know, just been married. She's, you know, like 20 years old. And now Les completely blindsided her. It's like, yeah, no, we have to take care of my three children. And she agreed. She 
had really no other choice because this is now her husband and she's not just gonna be like no i can't i'm not taking care of your children like no this is her husband now so she agreed shelly was six when they when the kids moved in with laura and les and chuck was just three and the other child paul was still a little baby so he ended up staying with sharon so shelly she was said to be a beautiful little girl looks wise But as she grew more comfortable in her new environment, she became very vocal about things that she did not like. And Laura later stated that, quote, she told me every single day that she hated me. I'm not joking. It was honestly every single day, which is really sad. Um, So once Sharon Watson returned to, so Sharon Watson, remember, Sharon is Les's first wife, who is Michelle, Shelley's mother. Paul and Chuck. That's their mother, first wife. Yeah. Okay. So once Sharon returned to California after dropping off her two oldest children with Laura and Les in the fall of 1960, it was basically as if she had never even existed. She never called either of the children on their birthdays or on Christmas or anything like that. Uh, Laura Laura recounted that, quote, Sharon came from a very dysfunctional family. Her mother was married five, six, seven times, and she was an only child. I understood she had a twin that died at birth. I don't know if that's really true or not, but that's one of the stories I'd been told. End quote. But regardless of all that, Sharon became involved in a very dangerous lifestyle and was even believed to be working as a prostitute. And in the spring of 1967, so this is seven years after she had dropped off her children, uh, the Watsons, Les and Laura, received a phone call from the Los Angeles Police Department. Sharon had been murdered in a motel room. And they also needed someone to come to L.A. to identify the body and to pick up Sharon's little boy, Paul. So, Les did not want to go get his son, which is like, hello? Like, he's your child. He's your son whose mother has just been brutally murdered in a hotel room. Like, you need to go get him. So, I feel like that kind of speaks to Les's character. Whatever. Um, But Laura insisted. She was like, no, we're going – we have to go get your kid. We have to go identify the bodies because Laura's a sweetheart. So they made the trip to California to pick up Paul and identify Sharon's body. The police uh, had told Les that Sharon was living, and I'm using quotation marks because she wasn't living. I mean, she was having a really difficult time on Skid Road. And if you know anything about Skid Road, it's like – awful just an awful place in LA and she was um Sharon was beaten to death when 13 year old Shelly was told what had happened to her mother she could not have cared less she was said to have barely reacted and Laura stated that quote she never once asked about her mother she did not care end quote so the Watsons um now had a new addition to the family, little Paul. So Paul had some pretty bad behavioral problems. Um, He had no impulse control and absolutely no social skills because he was raised in hell, basically. Uh, But as difficult as he was, the child who created the most difficulty for Laura was Shelly. You guessed it. Laura and Les now had a son and a daughter of their own, and family time was important for both of them, but mainly for Laura. They would make regular trips to Oregon or to the Washington coast for boating and all would have been fine and dandy and life would have been great 
if not for Shelly. She pitched fits and started fights or would simply just refuse to go. She just would just flat out put her foot down and be like, I'm not going, like a brat. If something wasn't Shelly's idea, then she just simply refused it. She would absolutely not go to school. Every single thing made her angry and nothing, and I repeat, nothing satisfied this little girl. Shelly's behavior started to shift uh, from ungrateful to just plain vengeful. She resented her siblings. Um, if one of her siblings was, which is, it, this is weird because she hated Laura and she wasn't really, she didn't say much about her dad, but if one of her siblings was receiving more attention than her, she became downright evil, which is weird to me because she didn't even like her parents. But um, Laura later recall, recalled that, quote, she used to chop up bits of glass and put them in the bottom of the kids' boots and shoes. What kind of person does that? End quote. And you're probably right there with Laura wondering that exact same thing. Like, what type of person? She's not even like a a full person yet. Like, she's like a she's a kid, and she's cutting up glass and putting it in her younger siblings' shoes. Like, psychopath. Anyways, so yeah, you're probably wondering. Hmm, what's what kind of person does that? Well, let me tell you about Shelly's paternal grandmother, who they called Grandma Anna. Anna Watson, uh, who was Shelly's paternal grandmother, was born in Fargo, North Dakota, and later moved to Clark County when she was a teen. She was said to be a big, big, big woman, just broad and tall and just large. And honestly, just downright scary by all accounts. She was just terrifying. She ran those nursing homes with an iron fist. Um, so George Watson, Anna's husband and Les's father, was just the opposite. He was said to be sweet and kind and meek and did exactly what his wife told him to. For 20, I could not believe this. This, this is unreal to me. For 20 years. George slept in a small shed outside the back door of the kitchen. He slept outside in a shed. He didn't sleep in the house because Anna simply didn't want him to. Now, there is no explanation. There, I think it's just because she was power hungry and she just, was, just knew that she could have her husband sleep outside, so she did. There's just no explanation, but that just goes to show you who she is as a person. She's not nice. Um, yeah, just crazy. So the people who worked for Anna endured endless abuse. They were essentially her slaves, and she referred to them as, and I hate this word, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say it. She referred to them as retards, which is just like disgusting. It's sick. And they so they worked for her for, with the nursing home that she owned and as far as i know they weren't mentally challenged she just called them that um there was one account of her holding one of her employees heads in a toilet and flushing it repeatedly so that being said everyone was scared of anna everyone i mean laura was terrified of her i mean they all walked on eggshells they were scared to um, say the wrong thing around her. They were, they were just scared. They didn't, they didn't want to cross her. 
And everyone felt this way except for little Shelly. Shelly loved Grandma Anna. She wanted to spend time with her. She wanted to be around her. She wanted to be just like her, she said. And so Laura worked at this point in time. Um, Laura worked at one of the nursing homes, I believe. And Shelly went to school not far from this nursing home. So Laura would pick up Shelly and take her back to Grandma Anna's. And Grandma Anna would watch her. And Shelly ate it up. She loved it. She wanted to be with her all the time. And, and that really troubled Laura to know, to see how close, I mean, Grandma Anna was not nice to Shelly. She like cut her hair really crudely one time because she said it, you know, Laura wasn't washing it properly. And she like, it was awful. It was like this choppy mess. And Laura didn't care. She just, or not Laura. I'm so sorry. See, there's tons of people. Shelly didn't care. She just loved to be around her. And Laura said that she felt like that was really, really quite strange. Um, I mean, when you get to to know Shelly a little bit more, you won't feel as if it's strange at all because Shelly's a literal demon monster. But that just goes to show you that something was not right um, from the beginning. And at this point, Shelly is just shy of her 14th birthday. So she's, um, no, 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 I'm so sorry, I misspoke. She is just shy of her 15th birthday. So she's growing up a little bit. She knows she should know right from wrong at this point, and yet she is still loving to she's almost willingly allowing her grandmother to abuse her, which is very, very strange. So let's uh, go to March 1969. All right, so Shelly was 14. She was just shy, just a few weeks shy of her 15th birthday. And um, Shelly hadn't come home after school, and Laura was becoming increasingly worried by the hour. So she waited for as long as she could. You know, she's like, all right, maybe she's just, you know, this isn't ni- this is 1969, so it's not like immediate lo- alarm bells because there was no cell phones or anything like that. So she waited, she waited, she waited, but finally she called the principal's office and was like, hey, where is my daughter? And the school told Laura that Shelly hadn't come home because she had been taken to the Juvenile Hall Detention Center in Vancouver. Um, The principal informed Laura that Shelly had told a counselor that something was going on at home and she couldn't take it anymore. And Laura was like, what are you talking about? So she she asked them, like, can you tell me what Shelly's been saying? But they refused. They would not tell her. So she immediately hung up the phone and called Les at work and told him what was going on and that he needed to come home, you know, that Shelly is in a juvenile detention center. And um, so he came home and, you know, Laura stated that she thought maybe Shelly had stolen something from one of her classmates because she stole stuff from Laura all the time. So that's kind of where her mind was going. And um, when they, so they went to the juvenile hall center and when they arrived they immediately asked to see their daughter but their request was denied by the superintendent of the facility who told them that all of this was under investigation and Les and Laura were both you know very taken aback they were like okay investigation this is really serious um so they asked what are you talking about what investigation 
and the superintendent uh, told them that Shelly was accusing Les of raping her. So Les was completely shocked, and Laura said, you know, she recalled she felt sick, she felt dizzy. Um, she said Shelly lied all of the time. This was nothing new, but this was too much even for her. And Laura knew her husband was a lot of things. She said, you know, he's a little bit of a liar. He's kind of mean, but he's not a rapist. And he would absolutely never do this to his daughter. And she knew that for sure. So Les and Laura continued to ask to see their daughter, but the superintendent kept saying absolutely not. They were investigating a crime here. So Les, frustrated, very frustrated as all get out, he called their family doctor to demand that Shelly be examined because he knew, you know, if she's saying I did this, it's incorrect. But if she was raped, we'd like to know. So, you know, called the family doctor to come down and examine her. So family doctor Paul Turner sent Shelly to St. Joseph's Hospital in Vancouver and the Watsons had to return to their home in Battleground. So this just sounds like a nightmare, but that night, Laura went into Shelly's room, not entirely sure what she was looking for because all of this was just so overwhelming. So I guess she said, you know, maybe I was looking for a clue. I don't really know. But I went in there. I was just walking around. It was filthy as always, dirty dishes, dirty clothes, you know, typical teenage girl. Well, not typical. Nothing about this is typical. But um, anyways, she saw something peeking out between the mattress and the box spring of Shelly's bed. And so she in- investigated a little bit. She looked. And it was a copy of a True Confessions magazine. And just a little backstory because I had no clue what True Confessions magazine was. So I, I Googled it. And it was kind of like um, – it was mainly targeted at women or like teenagers. And it was very popular during this time. It was kind of like a Cosmo cosmopolitan magazine, but like back in the day. Anyways, um, Shelly had dog-eared a page that had in bold print in all caps, I was raped at 15 by my dad. So, so Laura immediately showed Les the magazine. He was in disbelief and he asked Laura, quote, what's wrong with her? And this wasn't just a rhetorical question. I mean, he was troubled and he wanted an answer. What is wrong with our daughter? And Laura didn't have one. So the next morning, Dr. Turner conducted his exam on Shelly and concluded that she was perfectly intact, no bruising, nothing. She'd never even been touched. So she was lying. Shelly was released that night, but the superintendent of the facility, the juvenile detention facility, told Laura and Les that Shelly needed serious counseling and they needed to find her a psychologist immediately. So they did. But to no surprise, Shelly wouldn't entertain the idea of a psychologist. She was silent in all of her sessions. None of her sessions proved to be working. She wouldn't even admit to her fabricated story of her father of her father raping her. Instead, she seemed to be happy with how things worked out. Um, she loved the attention it brought her. She was in the spotlight. She, you know, she thought. Um, but Shelly wanted to return to Battleground High School. But they refused to take her back because, obviously, she made a false accusation of her father raping her. And why would any administration take a student back who did that? It's very troubling. Um, so Laura tried to enroll. They, you know, she was 15 years old. She had to go to school. 
So Laura tried to enroll her in Annie Wright, which was a uh, prestigious boarding school, but they researched Shelly and turned her down immediately. So they were, or Laura and Les were kind of like at their wits' end. They were like, we have to find her a school. So eventually, Laura and Les found a spot for Shelly in Hoodsport, Washington, living with Laura's parents. And you guessed it, Shelly made this a living hell for them. This is a direct quote from Laura. She said, with all of their grandchildren, my mom and dad never had a problem. I found out later that my parents were so glad when school finally finished and they could send Shelly home. I learned that Shelly actually told the neighbors that her grandpa, my father, was messing with her and they contacted my mother immediately. I don't understand Shelly's constant need to try it, to try to ruin people's lives, end quote. That summer, Laura spent countless days trying to find a school that would take Shelly. Finally, she got a yes from St. Mary of the Valley in Beaverton, Oregon. Ultimately, the sisters at the school did not want Shelly back the next year. They stated she was disrupt. Sorry. They stated she was disruptive. She stole from the other girls, and she would even put broken glass in their shoes. Ding, ding, ding. Do we remember that from the beginning? Yes. Uh, that summer was just awful. Shelly was volatile, and she told Laura how much she hated her and how much she wanted her to die. And Laura just couldn't take it anymore, and Shelly, she knew that Shelly ultimately had to leave Battleground. They put her on a plane and sent her to Les's sister, Katie, and her husband, Frank's house. Uh, Shelly had a way to get people on her side, so Katie called Laura a few months later and told her that Shelly could stay with them for the school year where they lived on the East Coast. Um, this was the last stop on Shelly's two-year tour of relative-to-relative, uh, relative, high school-to-high school. And um, Shelly, of course, was causing problems, but she didn't mind the drama. She was moving on, and she wasn't even 18 yet, but she had already met her future husband. Randy Rivardo uh, first laid eyes on Shelley Watson in the summer of 1971 when she was 17 and staying with her aunt and uncle in, uh, I think it's Murraysville, Pennsylvania. I could be saying that wrong, but Murraysville, Pennsylvania. Uh, she really caught his attention and he thought she was just beautiful and she liked him as well. So they began dating at the beginning of Shelley's senior year. But it was just a fleeting teenage romance, so it seemed, and the two went their separate ways in 1972 after um, Shelly's graduation, high school graduation. So Randy stayed in Pennsylvania, and Shelly moved back to Washington and became a nurse's aide at her father's nursing home. Later that summer, though, Shelly found herself missing Randy, and her father had told Shelly that if he moved to Battleground, he would hire Randy as a maintenance man for the nursing home. So Shelly called Randy and offered him this deal of, hey, if you move here with me to Battleground to be with me, um, you can work for my father and save for school. And Randy wasn't really sure about this at first, but Shelly eventually convinced him. So he drove to Battleground to be with her. Um, Randy recounted that right away it seemed like something else was going on. It very much seemed like Shelly's father wanted a husband for his daughter, not just a maintenance man for his nursing home. And Randy later said, quote, they rushed this thing so much that Les picked out my best man because I didn't have any friends or family in the area. It was that quick. 
and I just sat back and let it all happen, end quote. So Randy and Shelley, both 19, were married in February of 1973 at the Methodist Church in Vancouver. Their wedding guests said they seemed like a young couple who were very much in love. They went on their honeymoon right after the wedding, then came back to Battleground and lived rent-free in a trailer owned by Shelley's parents, Les and Laura. Um, shortly after the wedding, though, Shelley began to miss a lot of work at the nursing home due to what she called, quote, severe menstrual cramps, end quote. She would go home early almost every day or just not come in at all. And this was happening, I mean, this was reoccurring all the time. Um, so eventually Les fired his daughter. She then went to work at another relative's nursing home, but the same exact thing happened there, and she was terminated shortly after she began working. So Shelly was essentially bringing no type of benefits to the newlyweds home. She didn't work. She didn't clean. She didn't cook. She basically she basically just told everyone else what they should be doing, um, and she just kind of did nothing. So Shelly had had enough of living in this trailer. She had said multiple times, I, I hate it here. I don't want to live in this trailer. I want to move into a new house. And her husband, Randy, told her multiple times, we can't afford it yet. Like, once I get through school, like, we, we'll move into the house that you want. But just right now, we've got to, you know, stay here. We're living in here rent-free. And But this was just not enough for Shelly. She wanted more. So one day, Randy came home from class at Clark College where he was, you know, finishing up his school, and he found Shelly with a bloody face and the trailer in complete shambles. She told Randy that a man had come in and raped her and stolen Randy's rifle. So the police were called, and it was ultimately, you know, after some investigation, after they looked around, it was ultimately found that there was no break-in and that there was nobody there at all. Shelly just didn't want to live in the trailer anymore. Um, whatever Shelly wanted, Shelly got. Everyone was scared of her, so they let her do whatever she wanted. She acted like she owned Battleground. She left unpaid bills at the gas station. She just left them there. She bounced check after check, and everyone just allowed this to happen, which I'm like, hello? Like, why were, you know, like, what is, I was so, so many times in the story, I'm like, what is going on? Like, why is this woman getting away with everything? I will say she was beautiful. She was absolutely beautiful. And like pretty privilege is 100% a thing. And this is also the 70s. So like, but anyways, it's just, it's very confusing. So um, when Shelly announced that she was pregnant in the summer of 1974, everyone tried to catch their breath and thought, okay, maybe this would help. It didn't. But anyways, Shelly gave birth to her first daughter, Nikki, in February of 1975. Nikki was a beautiful baby, and even Shelly said so. She told everyone how excited she was to be a mother, and though they, you know, everyone around her was very skeptical, they were hopeful that this new baby would help, she help Shelly become a better person and maybe focus on something other than herself and maybe be a little bit nicer. Um... And instead of immediately taking the baby back to Battleground where they were living, Shelly thought it best that they stay at her parents' house in Vancouver for just a couple days or maybe a few weeks just to, you know, get a little bit acclimated um, to being a new mother and have some help. And Randy agreed, and Laura was just thrilled. From the first time that Laura felt Nikki kick in Shelly's belly, she nicknamed the baby Thumper from Bambi, which I thought was so cute. And she loved that baby. She loved Nikki. And what everyone 
thought was going to be a few days turned into three months, and they were still up at that house in Vancouver, and Randy finally put his foot down and demanded the three of them return to battleground. So they did. Laura drove up to see the baby every single day because she said she just didn't trust Shelly with the baby, she didn't trust her to be a mother, and Randy didn't either. And trouble kept escalating in Randy and Shelly's marriage. Um, Shelly would lock him out of the house at night, spend all of his money, even though they barely had enough money to take care of their baby. Randy started sleeping in his car just to be away from Shelly. And finally, he couldn't take another second, so he left. Nobody blamed him for leaving, except for Shelly, obviously. Randy filed for divorce, and there was a you know, I read there's just a ton of like financial deception at the hands of Shelly that landed Randy in unbelievable debt. And I, you know, it was page after page of stuff like that, but just an umbrella. She caused him a lot of financial trouble um, by deceiving people and all that kind of stuff. And after all of that was said and done after the divorce, Shelly disappeared. So at the time, a relative in Battleground had been caring for Nikki and that relative found Shelly gone, and she called Laura to tell her that Shelly was nowhere to be found, and Laura, you know, was sick of asking questions, so she just went to get the baby and began caring for her. Laura's love for Nikki was very deep, and she had almost wanted Shelly to just stay gone so that she could she could solely take care of Nikki because she thought maybe that was what was best for the baby. But about a year later, Shelly came back to collect her daughter from Laura, and Shelly's absence was never explained. Nobody asked questions because they knew they would just get lies. So they just moved on. So in 1978, Shelly and Nikki were living in an apartment complex, and it was there that Shelly met, Shelly met a man named Danny Long. Not long after she met him, they moved into uh, Grandma Anna's old house in Battleground. And I, this is not for sure, but I'm assuming Grandma Anna had passed away at this time. That's why they moved in. Soon, Shelly had a second baby on the way. Danny and Shelly married on June 2nd, 1978. And a couple months later, in August 1978, uh, Samantha, baby girl, was born. Danny was said to be a good father to the girls, but he and Shelly fought constantly. It was vicious, physical, and just mean, awful fighting. Once, it was said once when Laura was visiting, uh, she said she'd noticed holes punched into the drywall. And she said, you know, a lot of people would automatically think, oh, it was Danny, you know, the man. But she said that she thought it was, it was more than likely Shelly. That's how violent she could get. Uh, five years into their marriage, they divorced. It was 1983, Shelly was 29, and she had a new guy on the roster, Dave Notick. I think I'm saying that right. It just doesn't flow off the tongue right, but yeah, that name, you know, that's the last name. <laughs> Shelly met Dave at a tavern called the Sore Thumb in Long Beach, Washington. He was immediately drawn to her, and they spent the evening talking. He eventually asked for her phone number, she gave it to him, and they parted ways. Sometime after their initial meeting, he called her and asked if he could uh, come down and see her in Vancouver. She said yes, and while he was there, he said he fell hard for Shelly and her little girls. So Dave and Shelly were growing closer and closer, and they had kind of become a couple, and one day after a doctor's appointment, she told Dave that she had cancer, 
and probably wouldn't live to 30. Dave was completely shocked and caught off guard. He said she looked fine. She was in perfect health, he thought, uh, but he wasn't going to question it. And uh, many years later, he said, quote, I thought to myself that she was probably going to die. And if she died, who was going to take care of Nikki and Sammy? They really didn't have anyone. The whole time we were together, she played the cancer card. I should have known better, but I didn't. Yeah, spoiler alert, she lied about having cancer. I know you're shocked. But um, so the four of them, Dave, Shelley, Nikki, and Sammy, moved into a red house on Fowler Street in Raymond's Riverview neighborhood. Dave stated, quote, I didn't marry Shell because her kids needed me, but I have to admit that was a pretty big reason behind my wanting to marry her. So on December 28, 1987, they were married. One of their witnesses was a woman named Kathy, or sorry, Kathy uh, Lorino, Shelley's hairdresser and best friend. And I'm just going to say this right now. Remember this name. It will come back later. So as soon as Dave was married to Shelley, he could barely function. Um, he was, he'd become like unable to sleep, unable to eat just, just from being around her. It was draining him of all of his humanity. Um, trigger warning real quick. If, I'm just going to say this. If you have trouble talking about, um, mental health, maybe skip forward like 10 seconds. I'm going to give you a second to do that right here. Okay. He, um, thought of suicide and he actually almost went through it through with it once um he would stay with friends just to get away from her she would throw things at him shove him slap him punch him call him awful names but he never retaliated which made things so much worse he stated quote when somebody pushes pushes and pushes you into a corner pretty soon you're not going to want to be in that corner anymore people would ask me later why i didn't just leave take the kids and go you just didn't do that with Shelly. You can't. She wouldn't allow it. She'd hunt you down. So he became completely dominated by Shelly, and that will become very prevalent here soon. What, you know, he seems to be a good man, but we'll learn quite quite soon that he, um, his psyche was completely, I feel like he was completely broken down by this awful, awful woman. And there's really some gray area, and I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but the things that he does, I, I have to think, would he have ever done these things if it weren't for this awful woman? I don't know. So years later, the house on Fowler Street, which is where they, you know, the family was staying, burned down, and Dave and Shelley moved their family into a big craftsman rental home in old Willapa. I think I'm saying that right, Willapa which um, they referred to as the Louderback House. I'm not entirely sure why, but that's what they referred to it as. The house was at the end of a long private drive past some farmland. The road that the uh, house was on turned sharply up a hill where the house was tucked into the forest, essentially. So inside, the house was just gorgeous. It had tall ceilings, pretty wooden floors. It was just beautiful. Um, Nikki's and Sammy's bedrooms were up a flight of steep wooden stairs, and each girl had her own room separated by an open space that they would use for a playroom. Uh, this is a direct quote from the book. Um, it says, it was a great house, charming and comfortable. It was also the place where everything bad started. And guys, this is where, um, things start to get pretty 
pretty brutal. So I just want to, I just want to say it's, it's awful. Like it is, it made me cry while I was doing this and not a lot of things made me cry. So it's just, it's really hard, but, um, just a warning. So anything that Shelly could use as a weapon, she used, she would beat her girls if she thought they had done something wrong, no matter how big or small. When she would find a punishment that worked, she looked for ways to make it even more effective and more brutal. Um, It was said the act of beating her children seemed to fuel her and even excite her. So she's a literal monster. Just awful. Um, The girls stated that discipline, and I'm using discipline in quotation marks because this is not discipline, this is torture and abuse, um, would mostly come at night when they were sleeping because their mother liked to like sneak up on them. And they learned to wear extra clothes to bed just in case their mom would come in the middle of the night and drag them out in the yard in the middle of winter and just leave them there. Nikki said, quote, sometimes there were reasons, I guess. Maybe we used her makeup or lost a hairbrush, things like that. A lot of times... We didn't really know for sure what we'd done, end quote. And this is just this is just really, really heartbreaking. Um, but it was said that when Nikki played volleyball at Raymond Elementary, she wore opaque ballet tights under her shorts to conceal the bruises and cuts on her legs from a phone cord that her mother would use on her. Nikki said she never even thought to tell anybody about the abuse because she didn't want attention and she didn't want anyone to think she was weird and she simply said no one ever asked so she just didn't say anything while the physical abuse was absolutely horrendous um not all of the abuse that shelly put on her daughters was physical during the week before one christmas shelly locked nikki in her room she told her that she was worthless and she would never amount to anything and then When Christmas Day came, Shelly acted like everything was perfect and fine, and she showered her girls with presents, and for that one day, they were the happiest family in the world, and then in a blink of an eye, it was over. Another Christmas, Shelly gave Nikki and Sammy little teddy bear pins in their stockings, and you know, when you're opening presents on Christmas, the wrapping paper like piles up, and like you can like lose some stuff or like think you've lost it. And so eventually in all the wrapping paper, those little teddy bear pins got lost. So Shelly beat her two daughters with an electric cord because she told them that they were ungrateful. She kept them up all night looking for those pins. And when they finally found them, they were tucked inside another Christmas gifts and the girls and Dave, her husband, instantly knew who had hidden them, who had hidden them, Shelly. So Shelly intentionally hid those pins to beat her girls on Christmas. It's an absolute demon. I just, it's like, it just boggles my mind. So as the girls got older, Shelly would try to find new ways to torture them and make sure that their discipline, quotation marks, was effective. She would just tell them that the well was about to run dry in reference to the water source at the new house. They didn't have a well. It's a lie. So she would tell them no showers at all, and the girls had to check with her before they even thought about using the bathroom. Sammy said, quote, it was embarrassing going to school without a shower. You want to look clean and smell good. My mom wanted to control everything. She wanted to decide when we could bathe, even when we could use the bathroom. We had to have permission. 
for everything, as simple as a shower was considered a privilege that only she could give us. So a new punishment came about, and Shelley called it uh, wallowing. Wallowing was always a nighttime activity, and Nikki was almost always the primary focus. This is just really hard. Um, Shelly would come into her room, flip on the bedroom lights, yell at her to get up, take off her clothes, and get downstairs. As she was going downstairs, she would tell her that she was worthless and a pig. Nikki would go outside and squat naked in the mud as her father sprayed her with the water hose. Dave was mostly quiet uh, while all this was going on, and he did what he was told to do. And Nikki cried and would, you know, beg for a second chance. Her mother would watch from a few yards away, telling Dave what to do. She would say, make her wallow. She's a pig. Teach her a lesson. This would go on, Nikki said, sometimes 20 minutes, sometimes two hours. Shelly would then drag Nikki up to the bathroom, turn on the hot water, and put her in the tub. She would tell her, you're a pig, clean up and go to bed. And Sammy, uh, Nikki's younger sister, would watch all of this crying and just wondering why. Um, it was very clear that Sammy didn't endure as much abuse as Nikki did. Sammy was abused, that's for sure, but Sammy... Sammy had friends at school, and the girls today, the sisters believe that maybe they don't have an, a, a solid reason as to why Sammy didn't get as much abuse as Nikki did. But they believe that maybe because Sammy had some friends at school, that maybe Shelly was concerned that Sammy would tell, you know, or something like that. But also, um, Nikki fought against her mother. Like she would run away or she would, you know, not talk back, but beg and say, I'm sorry, please don't do this. And that would just make her mother angrier. And Sammy didn't do that. Sammy just kind of went along with it. And that's the difference. That's just, you know, that's, I'm not at all saying, I'm not saying like, Nikki deserved not even close am I saying that. I'm just saying that's the difference between the two and that's why Sammy probably didn't get as much because she didn't fight as hard as Nikki did and that's just the difference between the two. Um, yeah, so she just, Nikki tried to resist and Sammy didn't. She went along with it and she was compliant and um, yeah, this story, this little excerpt right here just blows my mind so I just I can't understand this but Shelly used to create these like lavish parties with like cakes and presents and decorations um, for this little plush animal that Dave had bought Sammy when he had just come into their lives it was a raccoon stuffed animal and Sammy had named it raccoony which is just so cute um for years Shelly even drove to Baskin Robbins, which was like quite a while away from where they were, for an ice cream cake and would set up these like little scenes. And then she would even leave out a half-eaten cake like overnight to show. And then like Sammy would wake up and uh, Shelly would be like, look, honey, like look what Raccoonie, Raccoonie ate it in the middle of the night. And it's just like, this just does not seem like the same person who is also having her daughter wallow out in the freezing cold in the mud completely naked like it's it's 
it's I just I don't have words. It's it's unreal. But Sammy said, quote, my mom could be sweet when she wanted to be, end quote. So one summer, for no reason at all, Nikki was locked in the upstairs bedroom. Uh, there were no locks on the doorknob, so Shelly used a butcher knife and lodged it inside the doorframe to keep Nikki inside. She would tell Nikki she was ugly and worthless and she needed time to think about why she was, quote, such a rotten girl, end quote. And she uh, told... Nikki, she would be in there for as long as it took. Nikki, lady, sorry. Uh, Nikki later recalled it might have been for the entire summer, but she stopped counting the days. Shelly allowed Nikki to use a plastic bucket from the Aberdeen Home Depot to use the bathroom. Um, She was only let out of the upstairs bedroom to empty out the bucket, and she was not permitted to have any contact with Sammy. Sammy was said to be really worried about Nikki because, you know, she had been locked. She had said she had been locked in her room as well, but only for a day or two. And Nikki had now been upstairs, locked away for weeks. And this is just really sweet and just goes to show that sisters are going to be sisters no matter what. And like, I have a sister. So like this whole story made me like kind of like really emotional, like just the bond that sisters have is just incredible. But um so Sammy would Sammy was worried about her but Sammy would try to stay in touch with Nikki by tossing small pine cones up at her sister's window when their mother was sleeping during the day and when the fa- family dog Freckles was her name had her puppies Sammy threw a, a pine cone at Nikki's window and she tossed it against the bedroom window and she like whisper yelled like there's eight of them And Nikki said, like, I want to see. So Nikki sent the bucket down and she had like tied like bathrobes around it and like lowered it down. And um, Sammy cleaned the bucket really well. And when they were sure their mother wouldn't see, she sent up two puppies. So to Nikki and Nikki cuddled the puppies for as long as, you know, she thought she could. And then she lowered them back to her sister, which is broke my heart but at the same time it's just like sisters man there's just something about sisters let's talk about shane watson so shane was shelly's nephew by her brother paul remember paul from back in the beginning paul had been in and out of jail and prison and for several years uh shelly and dave talked about possibly taking in the boy and possibly adopting him but dave just kept resisting the idea But, of course, Shelly got her way, and when Shane moved in, Nikki was 14, Sammy was 10, and Shane was 13. Shane loved heavy metal and Bon Jovi. He had dark eyes and dark hair. Girls thought he was cute. He had a fun, goofy personality that made everyone want to be his friend. And um, Nikki and Sammy took to him right away, and he really became like their brother. He was always smiling, always telling someone a joke, and Shelly bought him new clothes, new school clothes, and fixed up a cozy bedroom in the basement to help him feel at home, and almost immediately, Shane started calling Shelly and Dave mom and dad. Everything seemed to be going pretty well for Shane, but soon after he arrived, Shelly put him straight to work. He spent most of his time doing chores, and he was he became very scared of Shelly, naturally. He would do anything not to make her mad, 
and Shelly slowly started to fixate on him and put demand after demand on him to do more around the house or in the yard. And if things weren't done the way she wanted, he paid the price. Uh, Items from his room in the basement would disappear, like his pillow, his blanket, and then his bed. He was told to just sleep on the floor. And then Shelly took away his shower privileges and gave him only one set of clothes to wear to school. So the abuse started to, I mean, I mean, it was literally her idea to bring him into this house because she said he, you know, he didn't have anywhere to go. His dad was in jail and now she's abusing him just like her own children. So Shane and Nikki became really close. Nikki was only a few months older than Shane. Um, so they kind of really became like really good friends. And now it wasn't just Nikki who was getting the brunt of all the abuse. Shane was as well. Shane was forced to do the wallowing. Um, he was getting beaten just as bad. And, you know, he didn't have a bed. And Shelly could tell that the two were leaning on each other for support. And this is just absolutely disgusting and horrific. But one time, Shelly instructed Shane and Nikki to take their clothes off in the living room. And they were instructed to slow dance while Sammy watched. Um, Sammy said that her sister and Shane uh, were crying the whole entire time. And Dave and Shelly would just watch. Um, But they did it, and they knew better than to refuse. Because if they refused, the punishment would just be way worse. Um, The kids stated, and and I agree with this, that the nudity was more about power and humiliation, I think, than it was about, like, sexuality or, like, being sexual. I really don't think that was what was going on here. I think it was more of, you know, Shelly saying, you're going to do exactly what I say you're going to do, and this is humiliating, but you'll do it because I tell you to. I think it was more of a, it was, it was power, and it really was. I think it was just about humiliating the two. All right, we're adding another person to the story. Like I said, there's a lot of people involved here. So now we're going to talk about Kathy Loreno. Remember Kathy from the wedding? She was one of the witnesses. Um, Yep. So Kathy was Shelly's best friend and hairdresser. And like I said, she was a witness at Shelly and Dave's wedding. She was almost six feet tall. Her hair was brown and curly, and she was said to be just very pretty. Um, Sammy took to Kathy right away. Sammy said, quote, Kathy was bossy. That's what Shane and Nikki thought. And she was, but I loved her. She was like a mom to me in a good way before she lived with us. She used to come over and give me spiral perms and my friends, too. She brought her beautician stuff over and did her hair. She was great, end quote. So by this time, it's 1988, it's Christmas, and Shelly, then 34, is now pregnant with her third baby. And your mouth is probably on the floor because mine was as well when I read that she was pregnant again. Because it's like, why do you keep bringing life into the world if you hate your children so much? Like, it's, I just, yeah, it's absolute in shock. But, yes, she's pregnant. And she announces to the rest of the household that Kathy will be moving in. It was a shock to everyone, including Dave. And he wanted to know, like, hey, why is she moving in here? Um, And Shelly said, 
Her family doesn't want her. She needs a place to live, and she's going to help me with the baby. She's going to be like my midwife. So Shelly and Dave made Kathy a little room between Sammy and Nikki's room on the second floor. They decorated the walls with some of her things and just made her feel at home. Um, Kathy was only 30 years old, but she was out of work because she had been let go at her hair salon, and she was grateful to be with such great friends, she thought. Kathy worshipped Shelly. She worshipped her. She clung on to every single word Shelly said. She backed Shelly up on everything she did with the kids. I mean, not the not the abuse. I don't think Kathy knew the extent of the abuse, but like if Shelly had, you know, would say like, oh, they're being disrespectful, Kathy would back her up on it. So Kathy and Shelly were really tight and Sammy really liked Kathy, but the two older kids, uh, Nikki and Shane did not. Um, not long after Kathy had moved in, she started to endure the abuse of Shelly as well. Shelly slowly started to take away Kathy's privileges. Her personal items were confiscated, starting with her pictures, her music records, and her knitting supplies. Then Shelly took all of Kathy's clothes away, and she was ordered to do chores around the house naked. Um, she could no longer bathe unless Shelly approved it in advance, approved it in advance, and she had to ask permission to use the bathroom. And in time, bathing was done outside with the garden hose. Soon enough, Shelly started to enlist the kids to participate in the punishments that she created for Kathy. When Shelly told Shane to kick or punch Kathy, he did as he was told. He didn't want to do it, but he did. And if he didn't do it, he would be made to wallow or would end up duct taped to the wall naked or made to sleep on the concrete floor without clothing or a blanket. Kathy started to lose weight. Her skin was bruised and scratched and her hair had been chopped crudely by Shelly. She was simply wasting away. Um, She was losing her teeth. She had open sores all over her body. She was, it was just terrible. Um, Kathy's mother, Kay, needed major heart surgery in March of 1991 and needed, would like, you know, she wanted to talk to her eldest daughter about it, but she was nowhere to be found. They knew that she was staying with Shelly and her family members, um, and they had tried to reach out several times, you know, to get in contact with her, but there was nothing. Shelly never answered, and Kathy was unable to at this point. And finally, when Shelly picked up the phone, they asked her, you know, have, have you seen Kathy? Like, why is she not answering us? And Shelly said that she was with her boyfriend, Rocky, that she had ran away. And that was that. And Kathy's sister, Kelly, said that the name Rocky sounded familiar, but she couldn't remember any specifics about the guy and she had never met him. Kelly later said, We tried to find her, but we just couldn't. And a short time after that, Kelly received an envelope with a photo of her sister standing in front of a truck. And inside was a note that seemed to be written from Kathy, mentioning that she was sorry that she hadn't been in touch, but that she was okay. So in the summer of 1992, Shelly and Dave bought a white farmhouse on Monaghan Landing Road in Raymond. 
the house was very, very small. It was just over, well, not, it wasn't like extremely small, but for as many people as they had, it was small. It was just over 1,600 uh, square feet, had two tiny upstairs bedrooms and a master bedroom on the main level, and there was just simply not enough bedrooms for the three sisters, Shane and Kathy, uh, plus there was only one bathroom. Tori, who uh, was born in 1989, I said, you know, I said Shelly was pregnant. Tori was this third child. It was now 1992. She slept in her parents' bedroom on the first floor. Shane slept mostly in Nikki's closet with no mattress. And Kathy slept on the floor in the living room, and the girls had their own bedrooms. Kathy didn't bathe often before or after the family moved to the new home like the older kids. She wasn't really allowed to. But by this time, Shelly had done completely away with soap for Kathy, and instead she poured bleach all over her to cleanse her. This was obviously really painful for her because she had open wounds all over her skin just from not being taken care of, so this was just another form of torture. So all in all, Kathy endured five years, five full years of torture, but finally it all came to a culmination in July of 1994. Kathy could no longer stand. She was too weak to even speak. Shelly noticed how bad things had gotten and decided to bring Kathy into the house because at this point she was being kept in a shed outside. So Shelly thought she would bring her in and give her a bath and keep her in the house for a little while until she got better. As uh, they tried to get Kathy into the tub, and by they I mean Sammy, Nikki, Shane, and um, Shelly. They tried to get Kathy into the tub because she couldn't stand. She slipped and fell against the shower door, and the door fell from the track, like a, it was a glass sliding door, and came crashing to the floor, so glass went everywhere. Kathy had cut her abdomen and her legs very badly, and Sammy said that she could tell at that moment, her mom was scared, but she was trying to convince Kathy that everything was going to be okay. Um, and I think when, you know, Sammy said, oh, my mom was scared, I think she was probably scared for herself, thinking like, oh, crap, I don't want her to die because I don't want to get in trouble, not because she cares about her, obviously. Um, everybody knew that Kathy was not okay and that she needed to go to the hospital desperately, but Shelly insisted that she could save her. So Dave had been uh, working on an extension of the laundry room at the house, at the back of the house. It was a small space, but it was heated and dry, unlike the shed where Kathy had been staying for so long. So Shelly set up twin mattresses with a pillow and some blankets, and that's where she kept Kathy for a little while. So one day after, um, after she was doing something, Sammy came into the house and went into the laundry room. She knelt next to the bed and put her hand on Kathy's hand and said it felt cool. Sammy whispered her name and told her that she came to see if she was doing okay. She adjusted Kathy's pillow and her blanket, but Kathy didn't respond. Her eyes were open and she looked at Sammy and made a gurgling noise, but then her eyes rolled backward and Sammy knew that something was really wrong. Dave arrived home that day and heard an unusual sound coming from the laundry room and asked Shelly what the noise was. Shelly was getting ready to go pick up Nikki from the Sea Star restaurant in Grayland where she worked 
And she told Dave, oh, it's Kathy. She's fine. She's just resting. And Dave said, you know, it doesn't sound like she's fine. We should go check on her. But Shelly couldn't be bothered with this. She insisted she's fine. I'm busy. I'm going to do something. Leave her alone. Uh, so Dave waited until Shelly left. And he went into the laundry room. It looked as if Kathy had vomited and she was choking. Her eyes had rolled back into her sockets, into their sockets, and she was having a really hard time breathing. Dave started to panic and he shouted out for Shane, saying, She's not breathing, she's not breathing. He tried to perform CPR. He worked on her for a long time. Um, he did chest compressions too, but nothing was helping. Kathy remained unresponsive. Dave struggled to lift her, but she was too heavy, dead weight. He also tried to attempt a Heimlich maneuver, but nothing was working. Kathy Lorano was dead. Dave called the Sea Star restaurant to see if he could get in contact with Nikki or Shelly, but they were in the parking lot when he called. So the person who answered the phone got Shelly to come back inside and talk to Dave and when Shelly came back to the car, she looked visibly sick and upset. Sammy asked over and over if Kathy was okay, and Shelly just quietly kept saying she's fine. When they arrived home, the house was in complete turmoil. The kids were hysterical. Shelly was crying. Dave was beside himself, and so Shelly packed up the girls for a motel near Westport. The girls stayed there while Dave, Shane, and Shelly got rid of Kathy's body. Dave and Shane carried Kathy's body to the, to the fire pit uh, behind the house, set her down, and then piled wood on top of her. He put old tires and diesel fuel on top, and it took more than five hours for Kathy's body to burn down to the bone. When morning light came, he loaded up some Home Depot buckets and drove out to Washaway Beach, where he carried Kathy's remains to the ocean. Shelly loaded up Kathy's clothes and had Dave burn those as well. She retrieved other things she had taken from Kathy and tossed those in the fire pit, things like jewelry and such. So Shelly told the older kids that if anybody told that all of them would be in jail and they needed to stick to the story that she committed suicide and we, you know, we didn't want her family to know. But the truth was, Kathy had been beaten, starved, and tortured to death. They soon realized that suicide wasn't going to cut it because there was no body. So Shelley decided that they'll continue telling everyone that she ran off with this imaginary boyfriend, Rocky. They went along with the story. Um, but sorry, I'm sorry, Dave went along with the story, but he wasn't sure anyone was going to buy it. And Shelly, being the psychopath that she is, decided that she wanted to call Kay, which was Kathy's sister, and tell her that Kathy want, you know, wanted to see her and see if she wanted to come over. Dave obviously asked, why would you do that? You know, you just, she's dead. We just burned her body. And Shelly explained that she wanted to see what her reaction was. The call lasted barely a minute, and Kay said that she didn't want to speak with Kathy so they believed they had nothing to worry about, that Kathy's family would not be looking for her and it would not be a threat. So Shelly has murdered Kathy. Um, Kathy lost her life due to 
an absolutely insane, psychopathic, deranged, monstrous, demonic, there's not enough adjectives, woman. I don't know. She's not even a woman. I, I can't even she's not a woman. She's like a thing. She's not even a human. Um, and this person, this being has manipulated her children and her, you know, her grown, grown man of a husband. I feel like could be, needs to be held more accountable than her children. Um, manipulated them into disposing of this woman, this poor woman's body, this woman who she, who they were best friends and her hairdresser. And she just, not even just like a, you know, all murder is awful and terrible, but like murder by just like starvation and torture. And she poured bleach into her open wounds. Like I just, I can't, and there's so much other stuff that this monster did to this poor woman, Kathy. There's so, so much other disgusting, vile, awful stuff that I can't, the words can't even come out of my mouth. And I just don't think, I just don't want to talk about it. Um, it's in the book. It's in articles that I've read. Like I said, I'll link the book, but I think, I believe this is where I'm going to leave off for part one. Yes, this is a two-parter. Um, if you saw the title, you already know that. But if you didn't read the title all the way through, surprise, this is a two-parter because there's just so much. I Going into it initially, I didn't think it was going to be a two-parter. Then the more I got into it, the more I was like, oh, okay, so overload of information. I got overwhelmed and I, I really tried to fit it into one episode. But there's just so much that I want to cover and I want to make sure – I really, really want to make sure that not all the focus is on the monster that is Shelly. I really want the sisters' survival stories to be told, and I want the victims, to their stories to be told as well. There's two more victims, two more murders um, to cover in the next episode. So just a little overview. In the next episode, I want to really talk about, like I said, the other two murders uh, I would really, I really want to talk about the sisters and their survival story and how they kind of come together at the end. So we end on a little bit of a happier note. Um, and I want to talk about the a little bit of um, the prosecution of Shelly and Dave because they both ended up going to jail, obviously. Um, and I want to talk about the arrest and that kind of stuff because it's kind of interesting. I don't want to get too much into it because it's not like super duper interesting but yeah I want to talk about how they were arrested and prosecuted and that kind of stuff um so yeah like I said I really tried to fit it all in one episode but I just want to make sure that I'm doing the sisters justice and like telling their survival story because I think that's really important and crazy that they were able to overcome such horrors um if you can believe it I barely scraped the surface of what those girls went through and, and Shane as well. Um, so yeah, it's just an awful, awful case. Just, just terrible. But 
If you made it all the way to the end, thank you so much. For, thank you so, 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 so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed getting this all this information together. Um, it was hard to do because, like I said, it's a really difficult case. And I hope um, not the next episode because the next episode is going to be part two to this episode. But the episode after that, hopefully we can just get into some light literature about maybe like a fiction story and not something so dark and heavy. Um, so I hope that you'll meet me back next week for part two and that you, um, come back the week after that for some literature talk. Um, so thank you so much. If you listened all the way to the end, thank you. And if you're a look, if you want some updates, um, on when the next episode's, the next episode will be out next week, but if you want updates or if you're wanting clues for next case or if you want to dm me um suggestions for a case i've already had a lot of people do that follow my instagram at serial reader podcast and we you can get all the updates over there and um thank you so much for listening thank you so much for clicking and i really hope to see you in the next one bye mm-hmm.